Hey, my name is Ev Bannett. Welcome back to the Estoad Blocks channel. And if you want to check out any of this content in an audio format, instead of having to watch a video, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify and get exactly the same content as this specific video and lots of other ones that are on the channel in an audio format so you can listen to them while you are doing all kinds of other stuff. It's also under the same name, Estoad Blocks. So go ahead and check that out if you're interested. And if you want to stay here in the video channel, so then I just want to really introduce what we're going to be talking about here in this video. This is all about this pretty well-known, relatively popular, even in the non-Jewish world concept slash holiday we call Hanukkah. And Hanukkah really made it pretty big, um, kind of ironic because one of the themes of Hanukkah seems to be about sort of spreading a certain way of thinking or a certain perspective. And so it actually seems to have done a sort of decent job because if you look around, you'll see, this, especially in the American culture and even in other countries, there's a fair amount of knowledge and awareness of this thing, this we'll call it a holiday for now, uh, this thing we call Hanukkah. And I want to sort of try to show how maybe some of the, even though it's true that it's kind of well-known, maybe even in its well-knownness in the larger world, larger culture, and even in our own Torah Jewish culture, they were sort of missing a very key aspect, maybe even the most important or maybe even the only aspect of what Hanukkah is actually about. So a lot of the history of Hanukkah, I think, also pretty well known. You can check that out pretty quickly, pretty easily. You can look on Wikipedia, Google it, or you could read books about it. All kinds of different books and, and uh, places, in, especially in Torah writings, uh, are dedicated and discussing the ideas of what Hanukkah is really about. You know, the most basic detail seems to be something to do with uh, the people of B'nai Israel, the Israelites, namely us, having won a war in a pretty wild, unexpected, unpredictable sort of way. Uh, we use these tactics where we really uh, somehow were able to just defeat a much larger army. Uh, we were f fighting off the Greeks. Um, the context was that the Greeks were trying to sort of undermine the Torah lifestyle, Torah culture of our people. This is going back quite a number of years ago, thousands of years. And so we were sort of fighting back for our right to live according to the Torah, uh, with the Torah lifestyle and the Torah ideas that undergird the lifestyle itself. And so that seems to be the main event of what Hanukkah sort of is reflecting. And then we also have this other famous story about how when we won that war, so then we re we reconquered and took over and rededicated the Beit HaMikdash, that's the that's the house of Hashem. Hashem sort of lives in our neighborhood. Uh, he has a house in a in a city called Jerusalem, and his house used to be built on a mountain called Haramoriah. That's currently where there is a mosque current today called the Dome of the Rock, and so that is where Hashem's house used to be. He was literally the neighbor of anybody who lived in that area, and so Hashem's house, literally, literally called the Beit HaMikdash, means the house that is dedicated to the presence of Hashem. And so when we, caught, when we reconquered that uh, and took it over again with the, when we were fighting off the Greeks during that, this battle, so uh, we tried to light there's a special lamp inside of the Beit HaMikdash called the menorah. We tried to light it and there wasn't enough oil. You have to have a certain kind of oil to light it. It has to be something which is very pure and there's a whole process how you make that kind of oil. And we didn't have enough to do that for, we had enough to last for only one day and then it lasted for eight days. And so because of that, we have this process where we light eight days, eight, eight, over eight nights and eight days. We basically celebrate these eight days of miraculous oil uh, also, so it's like the celebration of these two events, and there's obviously a much larger backstory to that. So, a couple of things though that I think are a little odd about this. First of all, with Hanukkah, so there's no real theme uh, that is unique, let's say, to Hanukkah in the way that we have with all the other Torah 
uh, holidays, Torah, Chagim. So the uh, Chag means a celebration. And in the Torah, the Torah gives you like a specific purpose for each of the Chagim that we have. And so you can also look at the Chagim as if they're on a sort of like a, a timeline that sort of, that picks its way through the year. And that timeline really tracks relationship dynamics. So Pesach is sort of like the beginning of a relationship when you first meet and it's all very, very new and there's a lot of excitement and passion and you're not really thinking too much beyond like, you know, you're not, you, don't, you, don't, you don't eat as much. You, you just sort of very focused on each other in a very, in the, in the heady newness of the relationship. And that builds all the way to Shavuos, which is basically the marriage in the relationship. Then you have this decline where things start to go a little bad because whenever you get into a relationship, there's always a phase where you take each other for granted. And then you have to sort of fix that. And that's basically the process of the summer going into Tisha B'av, then going into Elul, then going into Rosh Hashanah, which is like where you really sort of fight it out. And then you try to figure it out together, which is Yom Kippur and forgive each other for the damage that you did to each other. And then Sukkot is sort of like the re-celebration of the newness. Uh, now, after the making up, so we made up, now the relationship kind of re, uh, rebinds and reconnects. That's that's Sukkot. And Shemini Atzeris is sort of like the cap of that. And then we have this long period of time where it's just winter as we go back to start over again for Pesach and the relationship starts again. Because relationships basically oscillate between those two types of dynamics. You have this situation where you are into each other from a place of newness, which you can have, by the way, even if you've known each other for many years, you can have a constant recurring new energy in the relationship. And you also have the sense of connection and, and sort of rejuvenation in the relationship that can stem from making up after the relationship has a problem. And those are really the two uh, parts of the year. There's the Pesach part and the Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur part. And so those things sort of operate as poles in the year, almost sort of like six months apart. And then we have these two random things. We'll just focus on one of them for now, which we have Hanukkah and we have Purim. And Hanukkah doesn't really have like a theme so much uh, inside of it. It's just really about lighting these candles and celebrating uh, this miracle. But that's a very specific, it's almost like narrow uh, type, of, type of purpose and theme to the time period, unlike the other Chagim, which really have a very broad and part of, they really fit into a much larger framework, especially how they relate to each other. And, you know, um, Pesach is really much more, it it's, has to do with the whole process of us leaving Egypt. And, you know, you can go through each one of the Chagim and sort of see a very large story. And here it's really sort of like this small event too, and even, it wasn't small for people who lived then, but definitely smaller on the scale when you think about it compared to the rest of the things that we celebrate on an annualized basis. So, I want to sort of delve into why that is and what exactly Hanukkah is actually about. Because I think that, you know, Purim is a little easier for, for us to sort of relate to because there's a lot of eating, there's a lot of partying, that's very normal. Hanukkah doesn't really have that. We sort of have this minhag accustomed to sort of like try to have some amount of special meals maybe on Hanukkah to sort of make it into more of a party. But really Hanukkah is about the candles and about sort of spreading whatever the message of the candles is, which is you're supposed to have the candles by your window, ideally even outside in the front stoop of your house, and like so everyone can see what, what the lights are and sort of know what they represent. And you have this custom to sort of add another light every day or every night until you have a total of eight. And so like these, all these things are, are you know, they're a little bit more, just kind of smaller, much less going on. And so the question is like, what exactly is this about and why is it so different from the other Chagim? So I want to first explain a little bit carefully what exactly it is that these lights represent. And I want to just also mention that there's a lot of places in the writings of our sages that the Torah is referred to as light, as or. And there's a reason why the Torah is referred to as light, uh, because if you actually think about what light is, so light is this uh, almost so obvious that we really just take it for granted, but light is the 
power source behind our ability to see things. In other words, we, we take our ability to see very much for granted. For example, you look right outside, so you see all things that you see, and then you see the sun is you know kind of above you, and you're like, well, we have to be very careful not to look at the sun because the sun can burn out our retina. You ever wonder like what the sun can burn out your retina? The reason is because the sun is a concentrated light source, so you have like a very very intense amount of light energy that is all in one small space, and that really overwhelms the light sensitive sensors in the back of your eyeball, which we call these rods and cones. And basically, whenever you look at things that are not the sun, so what you're actually seeing is you're seeing these little light fragments, we call them photons, and the sun basically releases all these energy packets called photons, and they fly all the way to the earth, and they bounce off of stuff. So you know, you see my hand over here, what you're actually seeing, you're not really seeing my hand. You're actually seeing little packets of light energy that hit my hand, and then they go into the camera, and then the camera translates that into a light frequency also, which then bounces out of the screen you're looking at, and it goes into your eye. And then the way it hits the back of your eye, according to the speed and frequency of how it hits the, your eye, your eye will register that as a color. So what that means is you're not actually even seeing my hand. Your eye is just reacting to the energy signature of the, of the energy packet that is bouncing around that eventually goes into your eye. So if you think about that carefully for a second, all of color works that way. You see colors around you as a function of the particular frequencies of the light that's bouncing off whatever it is you're looking at and then entering into your eye. So these are that's how our light how our how our visual senses actually work. We're not ever seeing objects, we're seeing light energy or our eyes are being triggered by light energy that are bouncing off of things and then it creates this image inside of our brains that we experience as sight. But you're not really ever directly seeing something although you think that you are because that's how it seems to you as the observer. So I want to just think about that a little carefully, what exactly that means, like what that implies. So what that implies is that you actually only see things according to the things your eye is trained or evolved to see. You know, there's a huge spectrum of light energy, and your eyes can only see something about around this much of the spectrum. There's really a huge amount of different frequencies of light and, and light energy. And your eyes are evolved to only see a tiny amount what you experience is all the different colors. But there's many, many other frequencies of light that you can't even detect. And so if you think about that, what that kind of means is that like you almost are only able to see, you're, you're able to see only what your eyes are evolved to see. So if we talk about Torah as being an analogy for Torah is this concept of light, what would that mean? So what I want to argue to you is that the reason why Torah is, is described as an analogy uh, is called light. So I think that we can describe this pretty quickly and pretty easily as sort of saying, you actually have the ability to see different things in different kinds of light. In other words, you can look at, let's just pick an example. So not only is it physically true that you can see things in different ways in terms of actual light, if you bring a black light, so it will make things look drastically different. So you can also see things in terms of a certain kind of conceptual light in the same way. And that's really what we mean when we say that Torah is like light. So think about it like this. Let's say you look at a person and you see them smile. So now what happens? All a smile objectively is is movement of facial muscles. But what happens is when you see them smile, you add a perception on top of the physical thing that you're seeing, which is just a human face, and the perception says this person is being positive, pleasant, and friendly. That's something which you're adding. You're now seeing them in a certain light. You're saying, oh, this person's friendly or nice or easygoing. So you see them smile. Now, let's say you then, similarly, you see somebody who is hitting somebody else. So then similarly, you'll, all you're actually seeing, you're seeing a physical event, two people's bodies interacting in a way that 
is active and intense. You could call it violent if you want. And then what you sort of do is you overlay on top of that meaning, a perception of what this means. You say, this person is not nice, potentially dangerous, hazardous, he's aggressive, attacking. And so what you do is you overlay on top of what it is that you're actually seeing another layer of seeing, which we would call a layer of perceptual seeing, or really a layer of meaning, which is the same thing. In other words, meaning is just that you overlay a perception of something, you give it certain kinds of connotations that are conceptual when you see it, and then that leads to your own sort of uh, experiencing of it. So if you see somebody smile, and you decide to perceive that as friendliness, then you'll be more inclined to be open towards them and be, feel safer with them, feel, oh, this person is friendly, I can talk to them. If you see somebody who is, uh, if you see somebody who is not smiling, and you say, wow, that person looks like they're really mean, then you'll feel a little bit more uh, nervous around them or, or concerned to not be too vulnerable or too open. And that's because you're overlaying on top of them, which is also, it's, you know, it's always a funny situation when you actually deal with a person who is, uh, who is potentially very friendly, but for whatever reason, when they're, you know, when you first encounter them, maybe they're not smiling. And so you could actually experience them in a way that is inaccurate. So you'd say, this person is not friendly. They're a little bit dangerous, maybe a little mean, a little harsh, like a little negative. And then when they start, suddenly they'll smile and be like, oh no, I had it wrong. My experience, my perception of them, the way that I saw them was actually not accurate. And now that I'm seeing them with this new event, that changes my perception of them. And I'm going to see them in a different light. And so what I would like to argue to you is that the battle that we actually had with the Greeks, that was this Hanukkah battle, well, they tried to get rid of our Torah. Basically, they wanted to prevent us from experiencing or living according to our Torah. And then we're basically fighting back and we're even lighting these candles now. These, are the, these candles represent the light of our Torah shining out now into the world. And the question is, well, what is the light of Torah exactly? Like when we say that Torah is, is a light, you can see people in different perceptual lights. What does it mean to see somebody in the light of Torah exactly? What would that look like? So. Well, what I want to suggest to you is that what if the light of Torah is actually the light of truth? So let's just pick this example and go back to our original example, a person who's not smiling and you perceive them as if this maybe is a person who's not friendly. And then suddenly there's a smile which, which kicks in and then you say to yourself, oh, look, I had that wrong. They really are friendly. Well, think about that carefully for one second. What's the actual truth in that situation? Is the person friendly or not friendly? Well, really, if you think about it, you actually have, don't, you don't really have enough data to gauge that just because of those two events. The first event was a non-smiling face. The second event was a smiling face. And both of those really don't give you enough data to tell if somebody is friendly or not. What does it mean to even be friendly? A person who is, let's say, uh, more open, uh, more comfortable, sort of like likes to talk to people and makes them feel good about themselves. And so if you have a person who in one encounter over a span of five seconds doesn't achieve that, and then another encounter, maybe a minute later, they do achieve that because they were smiling. So then you don't really have a very big clear picture of what it is that you are seeing. So if you decide to buy in the first time and say, wow, this person's really not friendly. And then the second time when they smile and you say, oh, you know what? I was wrong. They really are friendly. Both times what you're doing is you're kind of getting embedded in that experience, each of those individual experiences, you're kind of a little bit, you're, I want to, I'm going to use this phrase, you're almost like drowning in that experience a little bit. You're sort of losing the larger picture of what might be the, the situation because you're kind of buying into this particular experience. Now that's a very obvious overt example because, you know, you, you, um, m most of us don't make judgments based on two seconds of a smile or not smile. What if you have a conversation with somebody though, where you talk to them for, I don't know, an hour 
And then during that hour, so you get a certain sense of them and you think, yeah, I really know this person's deal now. And then it turns out you're actually completely wrong about the deal with the person in terms of their nature and what they're like, but you just kind of got pulled into a certain dynamic with them because of that hour long conversation. People can even do that to you on purpose. They can manipulate you too. That happens also pretty often. So what can happen is we can actually get pulled into perspectives and, and ideas about people and about situations that deviate from the objective truth of what's actually going on. And that's what I would argue is what the Torah is the antithesis of. The Torah is supposed to be a perspective that gives you a picture of the truth. And it trains you to look at things in a clear, truth-based way. But how do you do that, though? In a situation where you get embedded in something, where you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody and you think you understand what's going on, but really there's a much larger thing going on and maybe you're being manipulated. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you figure out? How do you learn how to analyze and pull back to actually see the truth of somebody? This could be super helpful, by the way, in so many situations. For example, people get pulled into relationships, especially, but, and especially we could just go with, with um, unhealthy relationships, uh, sexual relationships and marriage relationships and boyfriend-girlfriend relationships where you think you have a sense of the person that you're working with, that you're dealing with, that you're entering into a relationship with, but really you only have a few different cues or triggers that you're more interested in. Very often it's physical triggers, but it could also be emotional triggers. Maybe somebody makes you feel good. Uh, you, could, you could meet a person who makes you feel really good about yourself. They show interest in you and you respond to that and feel like, oh, wow, this person likes me. Like, I think that they're great. Maybe we can, maybe, maybe this, this is going to go somewhere. And you don't actually do a particularly deep thought process and analysis of who, what, who they really are, what they're like. You get pulled into those types of manipulations. So what's happening there is you're basically, like, like we said, you're sort of drowning inside of this experience and not seeing the larger truth of what's going on. And what the Torah is supposed to do, what it's designed to do is it's designed to give you a framework that helps you pull yourself out of these experiences, these embedded uh, situations where you're sort of trapped inside of a certain perspective or headspace or experience and sort of step aside and look at it from the side or, or you can think of it as looking at it from above trying to pull back from whatever it is that you are experiencing and seeing it from the outside where now all of your various tendencies and biases that you had because you were immersed and embedded in the experience you can see them now from the side and from the outside and so the way that that kind of works you can think of it as well the, the Torah is supposed to be a picture of the totality of a situation. And we have this tendency of sort of taking specific ingredients of a situation and fixating on them more. And other ingredients that are less personally interesting to us, we will leave them in the background and not pay as much attention to them. And so the Torah is supposed to be this, this light that you can use to see things in the light of truth. Now, of course, in order to illustrate that, we really need to spend a lot more time sort of showing how the Torah actually does that. I'll mention one brief example. Um, all of Talmudic thought, which is basically the thought process of analyzing superficial and external events and trying to deeply get to the root of what those events and ideas really are. So when you try to dig down, you take some random experience, some random object, a person, a situation, a relationship, and you try to analyze it all the way down to its driving root. Why is this person acting this way? Where is this coming from? What is the root? All of scientific processes, by the way, work with Talmudic thought. Essentially, it's about looking at something and trying to understand, well, what is what are the underpinnings, underlying principles and ingredients that give rise to this particular physical phenomenon? That's essentially what all Talmudic thought is about, trying to dig down to the roots of things. And so if you think about that carefully, well, that's exactly what we're describing here. Uh, this is analytical thinking where you basically take something and try to understand it deeply and get underneath it all the way to the root instead of sort of 
buying it at the surface level and saying, oh yeah, this is what it is, but actually you're trying to dig down and see the totality of whatever it is and whoever it is that you are dealing with. Now, why would that, uh, we call that the, the light of Torah. So let's think about for a second these candles that we are lighting on Hanukkah. How does that manifest? We just have these random candles that we're lighting. Well, I want to just draw your attention to one principle here that uh, is also pretty well known. You'll hear this very often. It's taught when people talk about the meaning of Hanukkah. You'll notice that there are eight nights of Hanukkah. And what you will have probably heard is that the number eight and the concept of the eight nights represents what's called lemala min hateva. It means above nature. In other words, there's the number seven represents in the Torah essentially a, a, a coherent system that is natural. So you look at the, the, there's a lot of examples in the Torah itself, and there's a reason why it's like this. The word, the word Sheva, which means seven, is actually part of this. The word Sheva literally means to be satisfied, and it's because you could think of the natural system as a self-sufficient operating system. The natural world is a system that seems to operate on its own. There's give and take and ups and downs and supply and demand in the system. And that's a self-sufficient and enclosed operating system of existence that seems to be doing just fine running itself. And then, it, and that's called Teva. And then we have this concept, this number eight, this, not, this number Shmona, which is Lemala Min HaTeva, which means above nature. And so Lemala Min HaTeva and the, and the, the concept of Torah, so essentially they're, they're the same concept. The Torah is basically supposed to be this thing which is above nature. And when you look at this for a second, you know, all these ideas that you're going to hear this week as you hear different Dvar Torahs and discussions of the meaning of Hanukkah, how do we sew this together? It's like there's some kind of theme here. What is Jesus talking about? So... I think if you think carefully about this, and again, you'll also probably see source materials if you're doing any of the learning, the Gemara, the Talmud, and other books about Hanukkah, you will find these ideas. Uh, some of them will be sewn together in these ways overtly. Others will be more uh, subtle, but I just want to put it out there in a very clear way here. So you can think about it like this. Teva, first of all, the word Teva itself, uh, from the word that means when you are Tovea, it means that you are drowning. Teva is the system that you, can be, that you are essentially immersed within. You are inside of the system of nature. And then it pulls in many different directions because nature is filled with forces that are attractions, distractions, all kinds of things that are pushing and pulling on us. So, but we have the capacity to pull ourselves out of nature, conceptually and perceptually, and sort of stop and look at the system that we are inside of. That's what we have. The, we have this ability to do that. It's, we call that self-awareness, self-reflection, self-analysis. But you actually have the ability to sort of pull yourself out and look at the system, and then you can even reevaluate the system that way. And that's where all insight comes from, by the way. Every time that a, a scientist like Albert Einstein figured out something incredibly new and deep about the universe and about existence, they, they all did it that way. They pulled themselves out of the current perspectives and said, let's look at this again completely from scratch, anew. We're going to look at it as if we've never seen this before and try to understand what exactly is going on here as if we've never seen it. And that always yields insights that have not been uncovered because suddenly you're beyond nature and looking at it from above. Now think about what that means in terms of the examples we've been giving this whole time. Well, if Teva means you know, the experience of being immersed and embedded within a system, so you can't really see it clearly. And then teva above the teva means sort of pulling yourself outside of that and trying to see it more for what it really is from a truth perspective. Well, that's what we just described as what the light of Torah actually is. And so that's why if you read a lot of different places, I'll give one example. Uh, Rav Cook has a, has a whole series of books called Orota Kodesh. And one of the major themes in that series is that Torah, you could think of Torah conceptually as coming from outside the system. It is like this light that is from beyond, 
And then as an outsider, you can sort of watch and figure out what the mechanisms, mechanics are within the system. And so you can think of Torah as that which is beyond the system. And then when you access that perspective, it sort of pulls you out from being inside of this ocean of nature that we are drowning inside of. And then you're, from outside, you can actually see it more clearly for what it is and get clarity and perspective on that. And so that is what the light of Hanukkah is. That's what the light of Torah is. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to undistort. We're trying to not see nature from within as products of nature. We're trying to see nature from beyond as almost like uh, active players proactive players who are who are able to sort of step outside or almost like reach our hand out to the beyond and hold on to that so that way we can access and interact with nature from a place of clarity and understanding and control. And that's what the light of Hanukkah is. We are trying to see reality in that light. So that's the that's the whole theme. Now let's just go back to our original questions. Really two points I want to just mention at this point. Uh, one is that the that's really what the escalation of one candle all the way up till eight it's supposed to reflect that every day you're supposed to constantly use your connection to the beyond, your ability to access the wisdom that is from beyond and above nature every day to see a little bit more clearly that the light of Hanukkah becomes brighter and brighter and brighter. And even more than that, the light doesn't end after eight days of Hanukkah. What's supposed to be happening here is that the theme of this these eight days is you could think of it almost as a refresher course and that's where it fits into the calendar Hanukkah is not really a Chag like the other Chagim Hanukkah is like this this little um, spark of light in the middle of the winter which is like okay so we have an intense experience and encounter with Hashem Pesach and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Sukkot but then there's like this long period of time between the poles where we're going to go we're going into the winter now, and this is kind of like a, a little spark in the dark. In other words, you can sometimes get confused when you have some distance from your beloved, and then you sort of don't see the world in the light of the person that, that you love. If you have a relationship with somebody, so as you get closer, you start to see the world through their eyes. But then if you're more distant from them for some period of time, then you can stop seeing it that way. You start seeing it more through your eyes. And the eyes of Hashem that we accessed over Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, that's the eyes of the Torah. In other words, that's seeing reality, because Hashem is, is the source of all of the universe and reality. And we have access to that. And then we basically operate inside of the universe with one hand and an eye to what is beyond. So that's what you're trying to do here. Now, you have this period of darkness where you don't really have so much access to Hashem in the same way because we're going into the winter time and this further and further and further away from the direct experience and encounter with Hashem that we had on Sukkot. And so we have this little, almost like a lifeline to sort of throw in there, but, it, but notice it's a generic lifeline because there's no actual theme here. It's not a lifeline like where Sukkot, which is a very specific theme, and Rosh Hashanah, which is a very specific theme. It's a generic lifeline because what it is really, it's just about Torah. And Torah is like generically... All of Torah is essentially about seeing reality through the eyes of Hashem. We focus on different aspects of Torah, on different Chagim that are real Chagim in the Torah, like Sukkot and Pesach, but Hanukkah is just a very generic, it's all about just, it's basically just about the, the, the light of Torah and about Hashem in a very general sense, which is, don't forget who you are, don't forget to see the world through the light of truth, don't get confused and get pulled into the, into the, into the universe and into the, the nature of things in a way that is, that is consuming or drowning or embedded. Try to remember to see things. Now you can take, you can go back to specific aspects of the Torah too. You can learn certain parts of the Torah. You can try to reaccess some of the, the underlying uh, concepts of things like the Sukkah or the Lulav that you had on Sukkot. And you could access some of the perspectives of, Pe of Pesach also. But the point is that those are, that's your choice. The overarching theme here is just 
the light of Torah. And Torah is vast. There's lots of different aspects of Torah, which you can learn. But all of them are fundamentally at their root. They are about this dynamic of pulling yourself above reality and beyond so you can be involved with reality from a place of control and connection and not from a place of just drowning, being swept away by the various currents. And this really, you know, that, that, that's what, what that leads to. This really leads to the perspective that Hanukkah is not just those eight days. Hanukkah is a constant process of more and more and more and more light of Torah in your life. And it's sort of like this reminder to make sure you're in that groove. Like these eight days in a row are essentially eight days of like expressly focusing on how we need to always stay in the groove of absorbing perspectives of truth and thinking more and more and more truthfully and not to get stuck in perspectives that are distorted or small or embedded or immersed inside of the, the natural existence of the universe. And that's what essentially we're doing here. And then you can, you can also look at it, uh, for those who are aware, there's another opinion in the Talmud about how to light the candles, which is you write, you, you start with eight, and then you go down to uh, one on the last night, which is fundamentally the same concept. We start with eight to say, this is what we're about. It's like we have to remind ourselves, don't forget the eight. We have to be beyond. And then it declines every night because what happens is it becomes more part of, it's merging with the natural order. In other words, you're trying to sort of uh, make this more uh, like almost like reinstalling it into yourself. It's like we start with eight. It's very overt. I have to remember the eight concept and then it's like, okay, like I got it. Now I'm going to start to incorporate it into my regular life until when you get down to, to, to day nine and now you have zero candles left because it's the end of Hanukkah. But now it's like, well, now it's just seamlessly integrated into my way of being. I've now become naturally uh, attuned and I'm going to continue to expand my knowledge of truth uh, as I can, as I go forward. So that's really the, the, the nights of Hanukkah are sort of like a runway or really a reflection of a process that we're supposed to always be in. This, and this ongoing process of more and more and more truth, ascending and ascending and ascending. And so that's what this, that's, that's the theme of this time. And it's the theme of all times. In other words, that's, that's the background theme to all of our lives, to constantly have that access, which is why Hanukkah in a certain way is not really like the other Chagim in a very significant way. It's not, the other Chagim are like, okay, different times of year, we have different themes that are specific to that time of year. Hanukkah is not a specific time of year theme type of thing. It, it, it's set up the way that it is because it sort of fits well in the darkest period between the two poles of, of Pesach and Sukkot. But the actual theme of Hanukkah is a generic all the time theme. It's always going on. And so that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to see reality in the light of Torah all the time. And Hanukkah is like this recharge to help us remember to do that. And it's supposed to reflect what's always happening anyway in between all the Chagim. You can think of it as like this is, this is the natural way it's supposed to be. I'll just mention one last point, which is that you could think of it as Chagim are almost like their, their pauses in, the, in real life to sort of like plug into Hashem. You'll notice that Hanukkah doesn't have that. Hanukkah, you, we still do malacha on Hanukkah. It's a regular day, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to incorporate uh, the truth of Torah into our regular space and see our regular lives in that light. You'll notice that Hanukkah and Purim, which are both about Pirsume Nisa, and they're both, they're both very similar sets of halachos, they both have that because they're really reflecting generic concepts. These are not concepts that are specific to certain times of year in, in the same way as the other as the other Chagim are. They're really about sort of just seeing reality through the light of truth on a constant basis and to sort of living your normal life with Hashem's clarity and truth constantly escalating inside of that normal life. And that has a lot of uh, implications for what Olam Haba is. I mean, that's a much longer conversation about the relationship between Hanukkah and Purim and Olam Haba. 
but that's something which is obviously not for this video, but just understand that's really where we're trying to get to. We're trying to basically live normal, regular lives that are filled with truth and filled with the light of Hashem's truth, Hashem's presence. And so we're trying to constantly plug ourselves into that and see reality through that light. Hope that was relatively clear and that you enjoyed that. And if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the comments and, you know, check out the channel, other videos and all that stuff. Subscribe and all the, you know, YouTube uh, ending comments. Uh, yeah, see you in the next video.